If a small flock of cartoon bluebirds didn't help you get dressed this morning, that just means you haven't yet listened to Fine Tuning with Jim Hill and Drew Taylor. No, the black dress slacks, please. Thank you. And now, Jim Hill. Welcome to Fine Tuning with Drew Taylor, your one-stop shop when it comes to animation, news, and commentary. I'm Drew's co-host, entertainment writer Jim Hill, and every so often, Drew and I wonder, what are we going to talk about each week? What's going to happen? And this week, there's too much to talk about? Yeah, that was a very, it was a very dramatic week in animation news. There's no other way to describe it. The startling news breaking that Lee Unkridge, after 25 years, is announced that he's leaving Pixar. Yeah. Crazy news dropped on late on a Thursday afternoon, which is the, uh, Jim and I know, the de facto time to drop bad news because the press pickup is somewhat less because people have gone home by then, especially on the West Coast or the East Coast, I should say. So, yeah, I was completely caught off guard by this. Had you heard anything leading up no, to this I, at you all? Know, what, what's fascinating to me is that, again, after the fact, you always get people who are... It's like, oh, of course you know about that. In fact, I was talking with a a family friend who has ties to Pixar over the weekend and, you know, was just talking about, yeah, everybody's talking about leaving there now. And it's just sort of like, no, I, nobody's heard that. All right. It's, it's Pixar. All right. When I initially reached out to you, Drew, but when the news is breaking, you were like, take a look at the letter. The letter is ridiculously sincere. This is not a guy who's leaving under a cloud to pursue other opportunities thing. I love the close of the letter where he talks about the one bad thing about working yeah. at Pixar is you you never get to go into a theater and, and see the new Pixar film clean. You always know about what was changed and all the problems they have with the movie. And it'll take a couple of years, obviously, because he's been in the building and watched everything that's currently under production. But at some point in the future, he's actually going to get to do that. He's going to get to see the new Pixar film clean. And, you know, it was a really sweet note. At the same time, I have trouble not connecting the dots here. The longtime producer at Pixar, Darla K. Anderson, left in March of 2018. I mean, literally the week after she and Lee were on stage at the Oscars accepting the award for Coco. And so for us to now be 10 months later and here's Lee going out the door? Yeah, it's weird yeah. for sure. But I, I've already talked to people and they say that he really is just taking time off. I've heard that he's not going to work for at least a year, which I hope to one day be able to say that myself. <laughs> uh, but, uh, I mean, the thing that we have mm-hmm. to keep in mind and, and maybe people aren't keeping in mind is, you know, he was a, he was a ground level Pixar employee. He was on the editorial mm-hmm. team initially. And, you know, when Disney bought Pixar, he made tens of millions of dollars. So this is not someone who has to work for any reason. And he's also got a lot of really interesting hobbies and obsession. You know, he's obsessed with mm-hmm. The Shining, which is really interesting. So I'm, I'm really curious to see what he does when he comes <laughs> back to work. But it really does seem like he's just taking a, taking a breath and spending time with his family. And, and it'll be interesting to, to see what he does. That's a lovely sentiment. And I... Hope he enjoys his time off. And again, I'll be intrigued to see where he lands and what he does next. And 
Speaking of yeah. being intrigued as to where somebody landed next, um, we talked on our last show about John Lasseter going over to Skydance, Larry Ellison, and inviting him there to become the de facto head of animation. And this past week, John got to address the troops, and the coverage was interesting. It did yeah. not sound like he was greeted with open arms. On the other hand, it sounded like during this 90-minute talk, he kept trying to hit the right notes. You know, the whole notion, talking about how he wanted to tell stories involving women and that he, he seemed, you know, tried to come across as sincere and heartfelt and that he'd learned his lessons and, you know, wanted to move forward. And this is a guy who, well, actually, John got the double dip because it wasn't John when Pixar went public right after Toy Story John, I think, was one of the people who was awarded a huge block of stock. So he was making yeah. big dough then. And then, of course, when Disney turned around and bought Pixar in, in January of 2006, another giant tsunami of money came rolling in. So this isn't a guy who's hurting. But, again, there's been a lot of supposition about what this is really about. And face it, one of the driving forces in John's life was that We've actually talked about it on, on the show here, that after he pitched The Brave Little Toaster as Disney's first full-length CG film, and Ron Miller said no, he, you know, he was let go from Disney. And a lot of what drove John was to prove the folks at Disney wrong, building his own animation studio and Pixar and, and then coming back to Disney and becoming the ubermeister of of both Pixar and Disney. In fact, I remember going to the annual meeting that year that was actually held at, I want to say, the Honda Center in, in Anaheim, and John standing on stage there talking about how, you know, what they were planning to do with the company now, that the new plan for Disney was quality is a good business plan. So for him to be at Skydance now, especially, I think it was in the Variety coverage of the meeting he was talking about that behind the scenes Laster has indicated that he he felt personally betrayed by bob Iger. that he felt that bob could have yeah. gotten out ahead of this and and stopped it and he didn't do that so a lot of what this whole sky dance thing is about redeeming his reputation and sort of proving that disney was wrong i think it, i think it feels really terrible for a lot of uh, walt disney animation studios and uh, Pixar employees that he didn't ever do this for them. He didn't apologize to them and say that, you know, his unconscious bias, which is what he's blaming mm -hmm. a lot of this on, reared its ugly head there. And he didn't apologize to them for the inappropriate hugging or, you know, the demeaning attitude, to attitude towards women. But he did do it when he was looking at a mm -hmm. new gig. You know, he did it when he when he mm -hmm. needs a job. Not that he needs a job because he could have retired and just stayed out of it, but he's got that ego, he's got that drive, and I think for a lot of people in the industry, that's where this really felt insincere and kind of showy was that he never tried to do this for anyone who he actually wronged. He's just doing it as a kind of dog and pony show for this new job. Animated features are like ocean liners, all right? They take two and three years to build and launch. So we won't see the first John Lasseter enhanced Skydance project till, what, 2021, 2022? And yeah, I mean, those are when the first projects are supposed to even come out from Skydance, period. It's already a different 
marketplace? I mean, when you think of the impact that Netflix has had, or for that matter, you, you were the one just talking now about the interesting animation news that broke over the weekend, like what was leading at the box office. Yeah, I mean, there's a, a Dragon Ball Z movie, which is, you know, based on the anime property called Dragon Ball Super mm-hmm. Broly, that hasn't reported grosses yet for this morning, but started out in almost uh, in a little bit over 1,200 theaters on Wednesday and dropped after Glass came into the market and took some of those screens. But it's going to end up for the six-day holiday weekend at more than $20 million, which is just crazy. It's just nuts that something that small can make that much money. Not just that that's small, but think about how much that movie cost, a dollar yeah. forty-five, if that. And the fact that it would make that much of a, a return on an investment. I mean, face it, one of the things that really started to bring the pressure to bear at Pixar over the last five years or so was not only how well the Illumination films were doing at the box office, but that the fact that they were able to deliver films that performed that well at half, it's sometimes a third of what Pixar was spending. Oh, yeah. I, w- I would say mostly a third of what Pixar was spending. Yeah, because the, you hear that the budgets for those are between 60 and 75 yeah. million. And then you hear that the budget for Incredibles 2 was probably pretty close mm-hmm. to 300. So it's just crazy. The business was already changing before John, you know, had his his issues, and it's going to be kind of interesting to see we get the the smaller operation over at Skydance what he's going to be able to do. But looking ahead to films that will get made or, or won't get made, I guess now it's it's time to talk about Pinocchio, which it's one of these things when they announced what was it back in the fall this new live action animated version of Pinocchio that Disney was going to make. When they announced that they were pursuing Tom Hanks as Geppetto, this really did put it on my radar. But I think that that's largely right. because when you, you start going through Tom Hanks's filmography over the, the past couple of years, it's like Sully Sullenberg, you know, the guy who landed the... In fact, just this week, we had the 10th anniversary of the, the plane landing on the Hudson and, and Walt Disney, and now he's shooting the Mr. Rogers bio. Tom yeah. really has the corner of the whole saintly figure market going. So I was looking forward to this, but explain how we found out that, you know, we just had another director drop out. So last Sunday... On the Discussing Film podcast, Seamus McGarvey, who is one of the great cinematographers out there, he shot the first uh, Avengers, and and last year he shot one of my favorite movies, Bad Times at the El Royale. He said, I don't think it's a secret anymore, but the film has been canceled over the holidays. Now, this was the Pinocchio that was going to be directed by Paul King, who did the two great Paddington movies, and he says, King... Basically pulled out of the film for family reasons. Disney are trying to find a new director, but yeah, I read those reports about Tom Hanks and these other people. They're trying to get it going, but I'm unlikely to be involved now because Paul King wanted to be me to be his DP on the film. And who knows the director they eventually bring on, and it probably will be delayed by some time now. It probably won't shoot until July or August if it shoots at all. So not a great sign for the uh, Pinocchio movie. <laughs> We had Sam Mendes attached back in 2017, mm-hmm. and he left the project. But at least we'll get the Guillermo del Toro Pinocchio from Netflix. That That's coming. When you look at both the above and below the line talent associated with that one, that's, that's going to be killer. But I, I have to wonder, do you think it's a coincidence that 
as Pinocchio is running into its production-related issues, that the very same week that this news breaks, we get the news about Tony Award-winning playwright David Henry Wang being hired to write a, a screenplay for a live-action Hunchback of Notre Dame for Disney? Yeah, it's interesting. there are a couple of interesting things about that report, mm-hmm. though, too. One was that it was like, they were like, it's very low on the priority list for Disney live-action animated ones. And then the other thing that was interesting was they actually referenced the theatrical production that we both know was a favorite of Michael Eisner's, and they said it will not sort of stick closely to that. Um, But that was only produced in Germany, right? Yeah, they did the original version in Germany, and then the interesting thing about Hunchback is it actually then played at the Paper Mill Playhouse outside of New York. And again, the weird thing is the reinvention of the show did it as a the way it worked is you needed a chorus of 40 people on stage and what happened is that various characters from the show would step out from this chorus and play roles and then step back in oh that's really interesting but the problem was it's a really 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 obviously with a cast of that size a people-heavy production. And it's been making the rounds. I've, you know, there's been a couple of productions up here in New England. Have you seen it? I keep missing it by inches. In fact, I was trying to get down okay. to Paper Mill during the run there, and I directly quizzed the folks at Disney Theatrical, and they're like, look, we're very supportive of this show, but this is really, this is regional. Like, you know, it just it just would not be cost-effective. To bring the show to New York, it will stay forever out on the road. And and there's some actually some wonderful songs that have been written for that version of the show. But it's also it's it's again much darker. There are no singing gargoyles. And speaking of dark, weird music, have you seen the Disney feature animation? I guess out ahead of this week's announcement of the the nominees for the Academy Awards, put the entire number a place called Slaughter Race up on YouTube. No, I have not gone back to watch it, but now I you will. You have to. I mean, it's one of these things where it's, they just did not stint in any way in regard to that number in the film. It's got the full Disney orchestration, in fact, and it's choreographed with it. I mean, they play it ridiculously straight. It's worth re-watching and re-watching just to see how it's staged. But again, it's a classic Disney princess I want song only with great white sharks coming out of the sewers and, and, and creepy clowns, you know, popping out of dumpsters. I mean, it yeah. is great stuff. It, it's going to be an interesting award show, I think. An award, and even the nominations are going to be very, very interesting to see what, what comes out ahead. There are five slots open for Best Animated Feature. Typically, though, there's only... Three films that sort of rise to the top or make the final cut. And so what's your thinking for the three this time around? It's more of an open race than I think we've seen in years past. I wonder if Wes Anderson's Isle of Dogs will get a surprise nomination. And then obviously the two bigger big juggernauts battling it out are Incredibles Mm -hmm. 2 and Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, which... I hope that Spider-Man will win, but you know, I, I keep thinking back to the mm-hmm. Lego movie and how many critics awards that won and how much box office that got and it still did not crack those nominees. And it's just really interesting because you'd think that that movie with its kind of experimental use of CG would have served kind of the same purpose 
as Spider-Man is serving. But, I mean, I don't know. People really love Spider-Man, though, in a way that is very encouraging. Even if the box office is not quite there, you know, I hope that the critical community and, and the technicians that are voting for this category get behind it. The thing with Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, there's so many weird canaries in the coal mine in regard to that movie. I mean, for example, I ordered my art of off of Amazon, literally Christmas Eve. It's completely sold out on Amazon. There's not a copy of this book to be had, so I guess it's being reprinted. And what they've told me is I can expect it sometime from like January 21st to, say, the end of February. Wow. And to me, that's one of those things where it's like, wow, art of books, just the weenies like yourself and I who buy these damn things. Oh, I've got my copy on the shelf already. So, yeah. Not not to rub it in, not to rub it in. You know? <laughs> but I pre-ordered. See, I saw it early, so then I pre-ordered it. So I was ahead of the curve a little bit. So, yeah. Did you say you actually have... Your review copy of Ralph Breaks the Internet now, or... No, I don't okay. have it yet. But you were talking about... You were kind of surprised at what wasn't on this. Well, yeah, I mean, you and I have talked a number of times uh, about the princess scene, obviously, and that we saw an early version of it both at D23 and then at the long lead day uh, for Ralph. And it was a very different scene. There were many more jokes. And it was sort of about embracing your foibles Mm -hmm. a little bit more. What you think are your weaknesses are actually your strengths. And... I was so disappointed when I was reading the list of special features for Ralph Breaks the Internet to see that none of that extra princess material is on the disc. Now, it could be in some kind of like Easter egg-y form where you have to click a bunch of buttons and it'll open up. But yeah, I was really bummed because those some of that stuff was hilarious. I would say about 30% of it was actually removed for the final version of the movie. So it would be great if everyone could see what we saw, Jim, but... Doesn't look like that's going to happen. The Blu-ray drops on February 26th, and I guess the the digital download will be available two weeks prior to that. So, but even so, yes, that is a little disappointing. And speaking about finding out fun things, Tony Hawk shared some very interesting news uh, earlier this week. And well, I'll tell you what, Drew, let's save that for the second half of the show, okay? It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Okay, so we were talking about this Tony Hawk quote. Do you know where this popped up? Or It was from Twitter, apropos of nothing, a couple of weeks ago. Mm-hmm. He just talked about one of the failed sequels of, of Space Jam, which was enough for me to say, let's do a history <laughs> of Space Jam. So, yeah. The quote in particular reads... In 2003, I was requested to meet with Warner Brothers about doing a film tentatively titled Skate Jam. They were bringing back Looney Tunes with Back in Action and wanted to start my project immediately. A week later, Back in Action bombed and Skate Jam was shelved forever. Skate Jam was at least, there were like three or four different ones, right? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, there were a lot of proposals. There was Spy Jam with Jackie Chan. That one seemed to have gotten fairly far along. I actually came across a quote, Entertainment Weekly, August 15, 2001. He talked about how he was in talks with Warner Brothers with Spy Jam, and he said, my manager is negotiating. I like cartoons. It would be very, very fun. <laughs> ah, Jackie. Uh, but, but the interesting <laughs> thing, in the exact same window of time, Pierce Warner's negotiating with NASCAR, reportedly to do a film called Race Jam, which was supposed to have starred Jeff Gordon. You jump ahead two years and we've got Looney Tunes back in action. So they clearly wanted back into that space with these characters. So much of what drove and powered Warner Brothers in regards to these movies had honestly nothing to do with the Looney Tune characters. I mean... What did it have to do with, though? I mean, Warner Brothers has never had a great read on what to do with Bugs Bunny, but what was the engine for the initial stuff? It's not going to take a rocket scientist to say, hey, look at you know how people reacted to Mickey Mouse and Bugs Bunny appearing together in Who Framed Roger Rabbit in June of 1988. Right. That would have made Warner Brothers aware of, hey, you know, we should be doing more with these characters. One of the key things here was it was Spielberg that went to Warner Brothers and based on his own personal relationship with that studio, got the rights to each of the Warner Brothers characters for just $5,000 a piece. Here's Disney with this movie that's made at, you know, $180 million worldwide, and it's like, oh, damn it. We couldn't have made that dough. November of that year was when Here's the Walt Disney Company celebrating Mickey's 60th birthday. Back in 1988, they had 200 licensees lined up. They had a primetime special on NBC, wow. and, and Disney bragged about the fact that they made... $100 million in additional Mickey Mouse merch sales that year, just on the back of the 60th anniversary. And to be honest, I think it was more that than anything that made Warner Brothers sort of sit up, and it was like, we should be really doing more with these characters. So what do they do? Right. The spring of 1989, they turn around, they cut a deal with Oldsmobile. Oldsmobile, at that point, had a new campaign they were putting out of it. It was basically about... This is not your father's Oldsmobile. And so the way okay. they decided they were going to put that idea out in the public was that, you know, they were looking for famous father-son teams and we're going to build hmm. some ads around them. And the, the first ad, they, what they decided to do is they got Mel Blanc, the voice of Bugs Bunny, and his son, Noel, who... Mel had been grooming, you know, I want you to take over my characters. I'm getting older. And so he, he groomed his son to do Bugs and Daffy. And so they get together and Oldsmobile shoots this ridiculously expensive ad, which... It is terrible. We well, should also it, know. it's terrible for a number of reasons. But one of the biggest reasons is they shoot this ad. And, you know, the animation, especially when you look at what was done for uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, isn't great. But here's the thing. The plan was the ad was supposed to drop... In the summer of, of 1989, it was supposed to kick off this year-long celebration of Bugs Bunny's 50th birthday. They finished shooting the ad, and then in July 1989, Mel Blanc dies. And the ad hasn't even started running yet. And so Oldsmobile now is like, great, so now we have to deal with, this is not your dead father's Oldsmobile. Right, well, and in the commercial, he's talking like, you know, my dad doesn't, you know, and it's like, ooh, well, he's not... He's not giving you any advice on cars now. Go. So they cut down the ad. It runs sparingly. And 
It totally derails what Warners is trying to do with this 50th anniversary celebration. And the company had already committed to spending $300,000 on a balloon for Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. So just not a good situation. And running parallel to this, though, is the whole Air Jordan situation. This is the the sneaker that Nike launched in 1985. Uh, They bring in Spike Lee, who had done uh, had just sort of broken through as as a, a notable director with his, you know, his debut film, he's going to have it. And so they create this series of ads where it's five foot six Spike Lee playing his Mars Blackman character again from, from She's Got to Have It, paired with Michael Jordan. And, and again, we all know the catchphrase, it's got to be the shoes. So 88, 87, 89, there's this, this series of ads. And now it's 1990. And we're up to the Air Jordans 5 and the Air Jordans 6 at this point. And Nike's looking for something different to do. What's going to make these ads exciting again? And what they decide is, well, why don't we do animation? Why don't we pair Michael Jordan with a a character? And the character they decide on is Bugs Bunny. So the first of these ads drops January 26, 1992, just ahead of the the Super Bowl. And no expenses spared. They spend a million dollars on on the commercial i mean jordan's salary is extra 25 artists work six months to do just a minute's worth of animation which has to fit seamlessly this ad causes a sensation oh i i remember when that ad happened it was huge it was like everybody was talking about that commercial to nike's point of view the shoes you know which at this point are up to 125 dollars a pair fly off the shelf so they're like oh let's do this again so summer of 92 <laughs> do you remember the charles barkley ad where he battles godzilla yeah that was an awesome commercial too <laughs> so you know i mean that one does well but it, not as quite as well as hair jordan you know that's what the ad was called right. so for the 1993 super bowl they do a sequel to a commercial they do aerospace jordan and this is literally a supersized commercial drew this isn't a 90-second ad as opposed to the standard 60. It has Michael and Bugs doing battle with Marvin the Martian, who has somehow stolen all of Earth's Air Jordans. The director of animation on this commercial is Daryl Van Sitters. When Disney was doing Who Framed Roger Rabbit all by itself, that's who was supposed to be handling the animation. Uh, obviously, when they brought Spielberg, Robert Zemeckis, and Richard Williams in the door, Daryl was politely shown the door yeah you can you can still see some of his test footage on youtube too there was like some kind of behind the scenes special that had his his design which is it's a very interesting and and it's a great design for roger i thought but not quite what it needed to be but you can still see it on youtube also that's paul rubens that's peewee for the voice there so yes that's right that's true and he had like a an animated kind of gruff police sidekick or antagonist or something yeah it was it's interesting would have been an interesting take on the material anyway speaking of disney june of 1994 the lion king comes out and is this behemoth it makes three quarters of a billion dollars worldwide first year in release highest grossing film for 1994 and at that point and it was the highest second highest grossing film in all of hollywood history and that makes Every studio in Hollywood sit up and take notice, especially after Katzenberg, you know, who is so closely associated with the success of Lion King, gets forced out of Disney August of 94 and 
And three months later, October of 94, he's setting up DreamWorks SKG with Spielberg and Geffen. And, and of course, what's a big component of that? It's his DreamWorks animation. And so now there's this, the equivalent of the Oklahoma land rush as far as feature animation is concerned. Everybody wants to be making a movie that makes three quarters of a billion dollars. So 20th Century Fox announces that they're investing $100 million in a brand new animation studio that's going to be headed by Don Bluth and Gary Gold. And over at Warner's, they took this entirely different tack. They didn't hire filmmakers. What they did is they cherry-picked out of Disney a guy called Michael Lanny, who was the longtime head of operations at Walt Disney Animation Studios. And the thinking at Warner's was, this is the guy who oversaw human or excuse me, human resources at feature animation at Disney. Also had his hands in engineering technology, finance, and artist development. So if, if anybody could build and staff a brand new state-of-the-art animation studio from the ground up, it was going to be Michael Lanning. Now everybody is rushing to get something out the door. They want a new animated feature out as soon as possible to compete in in this environment and and over at warner's it's like all right so how long does it take to make one of these things two or three years it's e is there something we could get going faster like say maybe a film that has live action and animation and that's when somebody goes wait a minute those nike commercials could we do something with those so this is 94 they start shooting in the summer of 95, which after they've signed Michael Jordan, Michael Jordan decides he's going to stop trying to be a baseball player and go back to playing basketball. So right. there's this weird situation where he flat out told them, look, that's my priority. I'm returning to basketball. So I'm supposed to be back with the Chicago Bulls this fall. So that's my priority. So you're going to have to shoot around that and you're going to have to shoot around my playing schedule and so they set up a full gym on the warner brothers lot so that when michael wasn't shooting the film he could walk over and be practicing in the gym and meanwhile everybody on the planet wants in on this movie so they line up sponsors left and right the one company that says thanks but no thanks is nike Oh, really? Really, it's it's worth watching the movie for the <laughs> there is one of the worst or it, or it depends on how you feel about it. Best product placement things in the history of Hollywood in this movie. There's, there's a moment where, where Wayne Knight comes into a hotel room and, and tells Michael, come on, come on, Michael, it's game time. Slip on your Hanes, lace up your Nikes, take your Wheaties and Gatorade, and we'll grab a Big Mac on the way to the ballpark. <laughs> you know, so. Wow. Well, a big component of this promotional thing, too, which I'm sure you'll remember, were the Warner Brothers studio oh, stores. Oh, God, yeah. I remember at the San Antonio North Star Mall, where near mm. where I grew up, there was a, a Warner Brothers Studio store directly across the way from the Disney store, and they had so much Space Jam stuff in there. I mean, it was it was unbelievable. And this was during that time where like people were wearing like a lot of T-shirts with um, like the Tasmanian Devil and kind of street mm-hmm. clothes. Do you remember that with like baggy jeans and a backwards yep. hat and yeah, it was, it was a crazy time, but there was an absolute blitz at those stores. While Space Jam, when it came out in November of 1996, it didn't do Roger Rabbit business, but it was the highest grossing basketball-related film 
It was a high-grossing sports film, which, again, this is why they began development almost immediately on Space Jam 2. And they had already begun animation? Yeah, there were a lot of animators who were working on it already, but in May 15th, 1998, that's when Quest for Camelot came out and crashed and burned. And wasn't Lorenzo de Bonaventura sort of overseeing the animation studio at this point? And he publicly admitted he had no idea how to run an animation studio, (laughs) and it showed. And let alone the fact that they're working on Space Jam 2. In fact, I guess you can go online and you can find concept art that was done for the villain of this movie which oh yeah there's a lot of that stuff out there yeah the the mel brooks uh character yeah that berserko i guess the the thinking at warner's was that this time around we want like a robin williams type genie sort of a crazy breakout Mm -hmm. improvisational thing so let's get mel brooks in here and so you can see art of that character but i guess at this point, somebody actually starts looking at the contracts because they're going to reach out to Michael and they're in the same situation. We have to work around his, his professional sports obligations. And it's like somebody comes running in and is like, we don't actually have him under contract. <laughs> and yeah. so then they do a rewrite of the movie where it's like, okay, so Michael Jordan's basically going to be an extended cameo. And it, at this point, now Tiger Woods is going to star in it. Yeah. After Quest for Camelot crashes and burns, really a lot of the the corporate support goes out for Warners in regard to animation, the enthusiasm. And so to hear Brad talk, that actually helped Iron Giant because they weren't paying attention at that point. Right. He was sort of making the movie as the studio was shutting down. (laughs) Yeah. And of course, that then bit them in the ass because by the time the film was finished, there was honestly no money or or no incentive to promote it properly. So that's July 31st of 1999. And as we said at the very top of this part of the show, that here we are two years later, August of 2001, and here's Jackie Chan talking with Warners about Spy Jam. And so they're swinging back to this idea that Spy Jam somehow doesn't happen and Race Jam doesn't happen. And then we get Looney Tunes back in action, which I know you and I have talked about. And Animation done by our good friend Eric Goldberg, but very little to uh, to encourage beyond that, I feel like. There's stuff in Looney Tunes Back to Action that I really, really like. Matthew Lillard, you know, in the, the Warner Brothers executive dining room being confronted by Shag and Scooby about, you're stealing my job, man! Yeah, yeah. Or both Porky having sort of this depressed lunch with Speedy Gonzalez about, I can't get work anymore because I stutter and I can't get work anymore because I'm a racial stereotype. And But the product placement gag, there's that, that gag where they, they come across, they're, they're crossing the desert and there's a mirage that turns out to be a Walmart. But they exit the Walmart with all holding big gulps and fresh clothes. And, you know, isn't it Bugs who says, wasn't it sweet of the people at Walmart for giving us this, this food and this free clothes for saying the name Walmart over and over and over again? <laughs> it's not untalented. In fact, Eric does some great animation in it. but He does. There's, there are some things to like about it. Um, Steve Martin also is incredibly insane oh, in that movie yes, in a really yes. uh, endearing so. way. But the thing that is so improbable is that we are actually looking down the barrel of a actual really for real Space Jam mm-hmm. 2 sequel. Like, it's happening. It's shooting this summer. I think that that's fascinating. I mean, as far back as 2014, they announced that, that they were going to do another one. That was with LeBron, though, right? Yeah, and LeBron's, LeBron is the one starring oh. in this new one. 
there are some, either, even some conspiracy theories that he knows that the Lakers maybe won't make the playoffs so that the shooting of the movie could be uh, a little sooner than expected. Oh. Oh. But I didn't realize that uh, in, t- in late 2016, there was a new commercial with the Monstars and Bugs Bunny for I Foot I did Locker. not know that. Now I got to got to chase that down. Yeah, but this new one sounds interesting. I mean, uh, Ryan Coogler is producing, so I'm I'm excited. I guess I don't know. It'll be interesting to see who does the animation and how well the animation Speaking is done. Speaking of sequels, though, uh, again, for, for, forgive me for segueing to your other podcast, but I thought it was so cool that just this past week we found out that we're getting two brand new Mission Impossible movies. That are being shot back to back, and in fact, I slightly pissed off at you, Drew, because you knew about this weeks ago. I might have known. I would never. I would never say that I, I knew ahead of time, <laughs> but um, I might have had a had an inkling that this news was coming. <sighs> but um, yeah, it's very exciting. This past week, we actually talked to somebody who has experience with Brad Bird, which is the great cinematographer mm-hmm. Robert Ellswit, who shot Rogue Nation and Ghost Protocol. Ghost Protocol for for Brad Bird, but. Um, We'll have a lot of stuff, hopefully, about these two new movies, which is very, very exciting. And I encourage everybody to listen to that podcast. It's called Light the Fuse. Jim, we're going to have to have you on to talk about the theme park potential of Mission Impossible. So just get ready for your big debut I will do my homework. And, of course, that's not when I'm not writing stuff for Marvelous Disney with the amazing Aaron Adams, who, by the way, edits this podcast. We have uh, Disney Dish with Lentesta. Universal joint with Justin Fuse. Looking, Looking at, at Lucasfilm with, with, with Dan Z, who nothing to talk about there either. Tiny little theme park thing, Galaxy Z. Nothing to talk about here. So <laughs> obviously after Tuesday of this week when they announce uh, who's up for the Academy Awards, best animated feature, you and I will have something else to talk about. Till then, folks, thanks for listening and we'll be back soon. Be sure to tune in again for another fine episode of Fine Tuning with Jim Hill and Drew Taylor.